questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. As modern humans first walked the Earth roughly 70,000 years ago, the moon's orbit came into harmonic resonance with the outer planets of Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. The common denominators underlying these harmonic relationships are the earliest prime numbers of the Fibonacci series, 2, 3, and 5, the same numbers that interact to give us the harmonic relationships of music. Exploring the simple mathematical relationships that underlie the cycles of the solar system and the music of Earth, tonight's special guest reveals how Neolithic astronomers discovered these ratios using megalithic monuments like Stonehenge and the Karnak Stones, discoveries that inform later myths and stories including the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Resurrection of Osiris, the Veda, the Hebrew Bible, Homer's Epic Tales, and the Return of a Quetzalcoatl. He explains how this harmonic planetary knowledge formed the basis of the earliest religious systems in which planets were seen as gods and shows how they spread through Sumer, Egypt, and India into Babylon, Judea, Mexico, and archaic Greece. He exposes how the secret knowledge encoded within the Bible's God Yahweh was lost as Greek logic and reason steadily weakened mythological beliefs. Recasting our understanding of the solar system, tonight's special guest seeks to reawaken humanity's understanding of how sacred numbers structure reality offering an opportunity to recover this lost harmonic doctrine and reclaim our intended role in the outer life of our planet. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. I always love to hear from you. Tonight's special guest is Richard Heath, a development engineer with the degrees in systems science and computer-aided design. His interest in megalithic astronomy and metrology has resulted in four books, including Sacred Number and the Origins of Civilization. Tonight's focus will be on the newest book, The Harmonic Origins of the World, Sacred Number and the Source of creation. Richard Heath joins us directly from Wales, UK. Hello, Richard, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you very much, Mel. You say it very well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a very deep topic. We'll be discussing music, the Fibonacci sequence, 432 hertz. I'm sure there's a connection here, but I'm always curious, how and when did your research begin? I think the uh, though I was interested in astronomy, uh, my my brother gave me um, a start by uh, coming up to Scotland where I lived and showing me his um, his understanding of the megalithic people's use of geometry, and um, he has run in parallel ever since, and we uh, still work together. And it, it, for the first time, you know, I was interested in stars before that. I became interested in these interesting numbers that occur between the time periods 
of the uh, celestial objects. The, in other words, the planetary world rather than the stellar world. And it turns out that it it has a um, a great meaning for the sacred numbers of the ancient world, and that implies that, that they somehow had come to understand the uh, the time period numbers, and uh, this can only have happened through the megalithic culture, uh, of which we know very little apart from their great stone monuments. And as I said before, I know a lot of your work is very technical, very deep, and for a reason, you're deep, you're driving into something that academia does not discuss. So because of this, you know, exact science, mathematics, ratios, Fibonacci sequence, so my goal is to make our interview easy to understand. Now, what is the significance of planetary harmony? Um, it's, it exists. It's very simple, um, but our present culture uh, does not approach astronomy in that way because uh, we see everything as a dynamic object and we use mathematics to describe the dynamism of it according to the laws of gravity. Um, and uh, we would not expect that the moon had come into harmony with the outer planets. And um, so it's t it's been a journey of about uh, 15 or more years for me to, um, after finding that there was this harmony, realizing that that was very important for our history. When you see the type of construction at Stonehenge, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza and other megalithic monuments, do you see a different type of mathematics than what we have today, do you think different mathematics preceded ours? I do think that our mathematics, which is something we've created, was preceded by a, a method of our arithmetic and geometry, so that the uh, whereas we talk about time having a length, I've been here a long time, um, this is literally true. Because if, if you take every time period as being equal, uh, then you can measure it as a length. If you decide to make every day an inch, then you can learn a great deal about the different time periods that you see in the sky between uh, 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 the solstice or uh, equinox, the, or between different the moon being at the full or, or half. So these different counting systems appear to have existed even in in the Stone Age, but when the um, in the Stone Age when we had the Ice Age, and the um, when that ended, uh, there is this flowering of the megalithic, and they appear to have used a very literal way of storing numbers as lengths, and those lengths were lengths of time. And so the monuments are the size they are because they had to record the lengths of time and they have the geometry that they have in order to be able to compare those lengths. Throughout the interview, I'm going to drop a few aspects that may not be related. A few pair of, let's call them parentheses, if you will. When I look at the megalithic monuments, you know, Baalbek and, and some of the others, and uh, we see a lot of 
information about dinosaurs, but we hardly ever see information about possible giants walking the earth. We see that on the Bible. We see it in their, you know, ancient books around the world. Why is it that giants are not placed into the megalithic monument equation? Well, in the world of uh, the human imagination, certainly giants are were held responsible for perhaps building these monuments because large people maybe could could make them. But um, uh, I don't. Uh, I, I it's an area beyond my specialism to talk about giants. Uh, I. Uh, see it perfectly possible for people to have built these monuments, and the evidence is that that the one the, the monuments that we have that are from a relatively recent time were not built by giants. But uh, uh, I see giants as uh, as something that perhaps we we want uh, to see. Uh, and they are part of our folklore, just as small people are. So I think it's, you know, it, from my point of view, I just have to get on with the evidence of the megalithic monuments, and I suppose it might not matter whether the people were a bit large or not. Well, the reason why you bring this up is because there are st certain steps in parts of the world, stair steps, that seem extremely high, you know, five, six feet steps. And that's right. why I brought that to the equation. I understand this is beyond your scope. but It was before health and safety. Yes, yes. and yes. But beyond folklore, you have little people around the, not around the world, but at least we have evidence of the, the uh, I'm trying to, the, the name is, is the fluorescences, home of fluorescences in Indonesia. So we have little people and we have, bone evidence of giants. But yes, it's beyond your scope. Now, I would have thought that mathematics being an exact science would be the same in the past as it is today, unlike science, which continues to evolve. No. Um, a lot of things have happened over the last uh, 4,000 years. Um, and we tend to think that everybody had it um, always in their minds. But um, uh, language, for instance, um, in terms of being literate as a general population, is relatively recent. And similarly, uh, the forming of the idea of a theorem uh, is, uh, you know, really belongs to the Greeks. Uh, so different levels of mathematics were built up since the ancient world. But my key key idea is that the ancient arithmetic of uh, of lengths holding numbers and geometries therefore comparing numbers and also doing trigonometry by the way, but doing it without them knowing about trigonometry as we see it. These things uh, are truly uh, belonging to a different culture to ours, uh, and so I I don't mean. Uh, mathematics at all, uh, I, I value it as a modern creation, something in, in, in the last few thousand years. But the, the, and, the, and this, these are the sort of obstacles we have 
to understanding the megalithic period because they had these things. Uh, they had the understanding that I've referred to of, of uh, ratios between celestial periods. They had them, but they they didn't have them in our way. And also when we study them now, we tend to use our techniques and it makes it very difficult. So I believe that we have to, in a way, open ourselves to the way they thought and then look at what they've done and see it as being an original and amazingly primitive but but direct way of understanding uh, the way the world was for them, seen from the point of view of the Earth. But you see, the notion today is that technological evolution is linear. This is what most people think, even academia. When we think of the Great Pyramid of Giza, they say to us, well, thousands of slaves were carrying stones and this and that. But many people think that the technology we have today is the best, yet we can't even come close to replicating ancient megalithic monuments which today, with today's technology. If the ancient ones possessed advanced technology, and there's a lot of evidence to prove that they did, to what do you attribute the gap in between the ages? What wiped it out, the technology? Did civilization fall? And if so, what happened? Um, well, uh, what I'm saying is that, that they didn't have a very great technology. They just were uh, able to find out the facts from what they did. So I, I, this puts me a little bit at odds. It's not really anyone's fault with uh, the theories of technology in the past, which from my point of view, I'm not willing to assume technologies in the past until there's a clear case for it from my point of view. Um, if people can do something without technology, then that would explain, I think, how what they did created technology. So instead of there being a technology in the past that somehow, and unprovably so far really, apart from little fragments of evidence, um, what created the ancient world was indeed these ratios and the idea that the gods were the planets. I mean, the planets were the gods. Should have said it that way around. Uh, because the the the, um, the religions of the ancient world may have been the first time that, that what we call religions existed, and they could have been based on the insights um, generated from doing this form of astronomy. And almost all of our religious ideas are, in fact, tainted by astronomical ideas. Uh, they, they're inspired by them. And... So if these ideas uh, were provided to the ancient world, the world of Sumeria, for instance, uh, as indeed I seem to find inside the stories, uh, using the techniques of Ernest McLean, um, uh, an elderly American uh, professor of music who uh, had, uh, in the 1970s, found four uh 
the story, the harmonic numbers in sacred texts having been put there deliberately to show a kind of like a, a divine world of musical harmony, uh, which uh, brought about uh, civilization. So the the, the uh, what I what I am proposing is that the megalithic culture trans transmitted its knowledge, and no one since the megalithic culture has had such a, a broad astronomical understanding until our own, which is different. Ours is all of galaxies and everything at infinity and everything, you know, today. But in those days, um, it was transmitted to the ancient Near East, probably from Atlantic Europe, and made uh, possible this kind of intellectual property of all these religions. Now, this is a very important topic here, because there's the astrotheology. Many people think that the Abrahamic religions are derived from cosmology or astronomy. You know, the seven, the, the 12 uh, apostles, the seven days, the, the uh, creation and so on. Do you think that the elite in ancient times were the ones who were imparted upon this knowledge of astronomy? Now we have the print and press, but a lot of this information is not even available to us. But in the past, they had an oral tradition, and only a, a few knew about this. Could it be that eventually they had to make the knowledge more palatable to the masses, and that's why they went from saying the sun to Jesus, for example, just to pick one one character, Jesus, the son, and Mary and Joseph and the apostles. But in reality, those were cosmological figures that were translated into more human-like, and that and preceded to that were the Egyptians that had a similar way of disseminating religious figures. I think it, Anna, it was um, a mechanism partly of outward survival of uh, the knowledge. If the knowledge is to, is to survive, it has to become common property in some way. Right. So the common property, uh, many people have said, became uh, things like games or dances or songs or um, um, the structure of a great book. Or uh, well, But it wouldn't be a book. It would be an oral – the oral transmitters of what we call books today uh, was a, a grand tradition that had existed – Uh, right up to the Greek Dark Age uh, of uh, where people would play a harp, you know, and, and it would be drama and it would tell the great stories. And there was a massive corpus of myths that were developed. And from this, uh, uh, we started to develop individuality uh, of the meaning of the individual rather than the heroism of the king or of the gods. And so one see the uh, the truth of the figure of Jesus as being a um, a perfect representation of the individuality of the human being uh, and their possible role. 
So, you know, it, what I'm saying is it takes time for all of these these ideas to come into existence. Uh, and history, therefore, should be seen as a, a kind of transformer of the way people think. And we shouldn't just automatically think that people were technologically in the past. You know, they had technology or, you know, I mean, we're, we're bound to think that because – I'm sure, Mel, you're familiar with the idea of the cargo cult, where where people on South Sea islands supposedly uh, uh, built uh, shrines in which cargo came on on ships or something. Absolutely, during World War Two, you mean? Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So they uh, there's a tendency always for us to project uh, whatever our culture is or whatever we see. And to, you know, to, to project it in a way which is uh, a form of primitivism. Whereas if we just accept that, that all of this has emerged slowly, uh, it, it had to come from somewhere. So what I, I'm trying to uh, say is that prehistory, just before the historic period, which had this phenomenon called mega, the megalithic period, uh, in, in many areas, it was um, – it created a foundation for the later – for instance, the measures that we have today, they all, were, they all were created in the megalithic period, or many of them were. And it was a system of ratios so they could calculate things by not having to calculate them because they didn't have the mathematics to calculate them. Uh, and, it, you know, that this is part of the thing that I've been studying – is how to explain what the megalithic gave to the uh, ancient world and then what uh, Ernest McLean, this professor, gave me was a way of putting it in terms of the, all the, the, the great stories of the ancient world so that you can see that there's a kind of continuity uh, in the evolution. And I think this will help us to structure the ancient history and the prehistory in a in a, a, a better way than assuming uh, a civilization like Atlantis gave gave us everything and then we lost it. Do you see that there's a difference there? I I, pref I prefer this because uh, I can't you know you can't often deal with a, uh, an idea like Atlantis, but you can deal with a limited evidence that's still available in the megalithic monuments and still available in our ancient uh, stories. Indeed. But with Atlantis, it's to me, it's allegory because there's no evidence showing that it existed. Lemuria and the rest of them. But as you said, the megalithic monuments are the ones that are there in front of us for us to study. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, are you saying that you you believe that that technology or technological evolution, rather, is linear then? Is that where you stand? Well, I'm not saying that technology is right as a form of human existence. Um, it, it, we, we have arrived at a peculiarly difficult time where uh, economies can only grow, um, you know, where, you know, the ever-increasing populations don't necessarily eat, and where... You know, we have a, uh, a hubris to do with 
never mind about that. We have to just get on, keep growing, and developing more technology. Um, I'm, I'm saying that, that that is a vision of time which is linear. You know, we, we think it can just go on and on and on along the line. But the increasing evidence is that it, it probably can't. So although I'm not a great big political pundit, you know, I, I, I can see that the ancient view of time was to also include the cyclic time. You know, we all are born, we live and we die, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And uh, when you take that into account, it's just like the way that the planets work that there is this form of eternal time and it goes on in the background of our lives. Uh, and I think we need to find some sort of a balance because everything is a really a system that has a beginning and an end, but then it has a way of regenerating itself. Whereas if we just keep on pressing the go button, then, you know, so I'm not, uh, I'm not a great believer in technological progress. I mean, uh, except, you know, I've lived through a great time of it. Um, I think the words can sound very hollow, and uh, we've had a, an attempt uh, over the last 30 or 40 years to provide a, um, more and more alternatives to just that simple idea that we that we can go on growing as a culture, because it would be far more satisfying for us to be wise than for us to be rich. But Occam's Racer tells me that, for example, in the last 100 years, we went from horse and buggy to going to the moon. That's if, folks, you believe you went to the moon. But the technological advances were incredible in just a span of just a few decades. Yes. At the same time, we go back in time thousands of years ago. And we yeah. see Baalbek, and we see Pumapunku, and we see all these places around the world that have holes that are so precise that only advanced technology would have been able to accomplish that. And we cannot even come close to doing that today. And Ogun's Racer tells me that if today there's a cataclysm again, and 100, 200, 1,000 years down the road, somebody digs and finds an iPhone they may think, oh, my goodness, look at that. What is that? Or plastic. Oh, those were the plastic people. And people would start to assume things about our past, and they would have to relearn the technology. But if the knowledge is lost, it's almost like you're starting from sticks and stones. Right. That's, uh, that's true. Uh, so then it's, uh, it's important to step back from that loss. You know, it's, uh, and the only way I can think of, of doing it myself, because, you know, is, is just to, uh, I think you have to do it on an individual level. You know, I don't think we can do it by convincing loads of people to do it. And I think the loads, there are a lot of people who are doing um their own individual lives differently um, in spite of the fact that you're supposed to be just contributing to this to this one type of culture and um, I'm not a particularly alternative person I'm just somebody who who 
has got into the mind of the megalithic people, and I can see how it is a, um, it broadens your mind. Um, I mean, like I remember my father said, the reason to go to university was not necessarily to have a qualification, but to develop your mind. And I think that everybody can uh, learn something from the megalithic people's way of understanding the the pure, the the way the sacred numbers it's uh i know this this effect there was a, a famous englishman who died 10 years ago john michel and he had a a belief that that in fact by learning the ancient uh, numerical laws you um it transformed your mind a lot of people who do, do sacred geometry believe the same thing and, and although everybody doesn't want to do, you know, the, one thing or another, the the thing is you've got to you've got to do something uh, to understand the world you live in, uh, and not just take what the world itself says that it is, because it's a very very interesting world. You know, I mean, uh, you know, most people don't have the time to even look at the world. And, you know, this is a very negative aspect uh, because the world just in its simple aspects is is really um, – and, and the, the people at the end of the Ice Age, uh, they were completely uh, able to support themselves. Uh, and they had some kind of rich tradition, you know, with uh, that they, they could do the paintings, they had the visualization, they could paint round a rock. Uh, in perfect dimensionality, um, and there's evidence, you know, that even that they were counting the moon and they were making geometrical shapes and possibly even studying the nature and the structure of number, like with the Fibonacci series or with the three, four, five triangle. Uh, these structures, ha uh, they have a, an effect upon the human mind. So maybe that their riches were not technological, but they were um, internalized. Let me dissect a couple of your points because they're very interesting. For example, yeah. you mentioned that the Ice Age, the people that came out of that age were able to do certain things. But don't you think that at that time they were in a survival mode coming out of that age where people needed to survive in many ways that today, at least in the Western world, most people... Yeah. Just are just kicking back, sitting on their couch, watching the six o'clock news and sports and eating fast food. They don't have that survival mechanism. Plus, they're working a lot, two, three jobs. So they don't have the time to step outside the box and, and learn, learn the evidence as opposed to what most people have to go through, which is the system of belief. They are, yes. they are told this is the way it is, and most people think, well, I don't have time to just discredit what they're telling me, so I'm going to follow it. Now, you said something else very interesting. The economies can only go so far with our current system, and I agree 100% with you that it's not perfect. But if you go back in time thousands of years ago, there were canals that with current technology, we're discovering there were canals that were a hundred times bigger than the Panama Canal, for example. And the Panama Canal cost billions of dollars. Some of these new ones that are being discovered thousands of years ago 
were probably in the trillions of dollars. Now, what kind of economic system did they use back then in order to be able to accomplish that? Well, I, I, I don't know. But, you know, the first point you brought up was the fact that in some way I'm living an elite life. <laughs> yes. I, I, yeah. I think that because you brought, you brought elitism up as a, an initial example to do with uh, the people who originally originated all these thoughts that I am borrowing into, you know, now. And um, I, you know, I, I really, I don't, although I'm competent in some areas, I'm, I'm, I'm not even up to speed on, on these large canals. So my, my, my problem is that I have chosen not to go there, I suppose. And I'm very sorry for everybody else if, if I appear to be spurning the idea, but I can't do it just because I, um, well, I haven't actually seen the evidence. Maybe you could tell me a bit more about it. Well, yeah, that's that. okay. A, a lot of this is just coming out now with a few individuals that have used the technology available to them, Google Earth and so on. They're going around the world and you're just going down all, almost on a macroscopic level looking at these formations that could not be natural. And when they start looking at them, they were actually canals used by certain ancient civilizations, even in the United States. Well, as the earthworks, of course, in the United States, which in themselves are, and in uh, South America, which uh, could be connected to the Olmec. Uh, you know, it, it could all be part of some larger uh, cultural activity. Um, the uh, I'm wondering why people needed to move water around or why they needed these large waterways um, in America, uh, for instance. But the, uh, the the thing about it is, can you see that, that I'm immediately at a loss uh, with it? So uh, because, because of that, it's obviously not something I can deal with. And what I did do in my uh, recent work, I was given the opportunities – uh, speaking to a conference of musicologists, and I found that uh, there's a monument in a lesser known. You know, the Olmec are a group of people that arose between 1500 and 1200 BC, and they appear to have a very interesting connection with the uh, the uh, sudden collapse of the Bronze Age in 1200 BC. And there's uh, waterways. I mean, there's a particular wind and and current in the Mediterranean that leads you to uh, the exiting the Mediterranean, and then if you have the uh, the natural route down to the uh, Caribbean and and central Mexico, uh, which Columbus took, and so it, it appears that that some communication perhaps triggered by the demise of the Bronze Age culture in the old world arrived in the new world. And there's good evidence that, that the, um, because you can see, you can interpret monuments and sculptures and things for the ancient tuning theory, which is a musical theory that we particularly find 
uh, in uh, Babylonia uh, with their tables of numbers and, and other things expressing the types of tuning that they had in the ancient world. And these appear to have tran been transferred, but take on a different character, of course, in the new world. Uh, and so that's an area of interest as to whether the other things that were going on with these earthworks were also associated, because their first cities were enormous earthworks. Um, La Venta was an enormous earthwork, uh, more so than uh, the later. Uh, and the, there's a one little town with the Twin Peaked Hills um, called Kalchajinga, and in it, there are these beautiful sculptures were, and other monuments. And one of them is of a, what turns out to be a Mexican lady, uh, in the middle of a, like a, a cave with all these twirly things coming out and people explain it as being rain. But in fact, it's a perfect demonstration of, of an octave. And so there was, and this octave has its roots, you wouldn't believe, in, uh, the figure of Adam at the beginning of the Bible, because um, Adam's name has uh, uh, at least one meaning, which if you add them up as numbers, as, num as letters had a number equivalence, it was very useful to be able to express numbers that way. Um, it, it adds up to 45, which is a, a harmonic root that, that's absolutely crucial in the harmonic world. Now, I can't obviously do all that on a on a, a talking basis, but um, there's this, the the um, the culmination. Uh, what what the Kalshat singer sculpture represents is the culmination beyond Adam's limiting number above forty five, which is you multiply it by sixteen or something, and you get fourteen forty. And this number occurs all over the place, uh, but you, you find it in um, the layout of the Parthenon. And so the one of the stories in my book is, is of the, um, the different cultural uh, outpourings of this same musical doctrine, uh, which had originated from discovering that the outer planets were in harmonic relationship, and therefore that the gods might be the planets, might be the gods, and so forth. So you can see that um, the, the and the the reason why Adam only went up to fourteen forty was because when you get two thousand eight hundred and eighty, which is twice that, you find that the eclipse phenomenon, the eclipse year. Uh, arises and the eclipse year is something that appears to have been filtered out in the bible religion so i've said a lot i can say more <laughs> do you want to break in there that's fine and i like it when you say more that's there's no censorship what at all so you can continue we have plenty of time but you mentioned the olmecs and i'm thinking that they probably gave rise to the maya and the aztecs and they, the Aztecs and the Maya probably claim 
the credit for building all these megalithic monuments here, but in fact, it could have been the Olmecs. Could the same thing be said about the Egyptians? They claim the credit of having made all that, but could a previous civilization, let's call them the Atlanteans, if you will, could a different civilization be the one responsible for all that? Well, you can you, you can clearly say that, that the uh, megalithic culture of the northern, the western seaboard of the of Europe, uh, was indeed on the Atlantic, and um, having developed their system of metrology, there's evidence of some attempt to measure the size of the Earth in uh, in England. In England, you you can see roundabout Stonehenge and Avebury an attempt to analyze that particular degree of latitude because it is, in, it is in fact, the same length. Every, uh, every degree of latitude has a different length on the Earth. Uh, Egypt, uh, the, the, th- the four different sides of the Great Pyramid of Giza each represent uh, proportionately uh, four of the latitudes of Egypt um, this was discovered by uh, a colleague of mine called John Neal, and he restored, really, with John Michel, this uh, system of ancient metrology from the historical metrology that existed, uh, but was very confused all over the place. So if we just go back to, to the discovery of the size of the Earth, well, it's almost certainly the case, as we know in later history, that we had to send parties, the French did, to uh, French Guiana and to Spain, the Pyrenees, to measure two degrees, two different degrees, and from that to be able to work on the shape of the Earth to create their meter in length. But they, it turned out that they couldn't rely on the results, so they came up with a meter that appears arbitrary. But the, the point is that in the ancient world, a similar problem had cropped up they realized that different degrees were of a different length. Like um, halfway up the British Isles, you know, is uh, is a, a significantly different length to, to where it is in Stonehenge. So if you go down to um, Egypt, you find that that's the perfect area to have provided the second region. And I think that what happened was the... Um, the, the, that was one of the big contacts of the megalithic world was with Egypt that the Egyptian priesthood effectively took on board the megalithic system and they converted their land, which was a north-south land, just like a meridian on the earth. They converted it into holy in the sense of being exactly measured. And from that, we, we get a very simple model of the Earth based on three different values of pi from which you can get a very accurate figure for the Earth that competes with the present one today. And so their, their way uh, had to be simple, and it was very, very simple of using these three different approximations to pi. We're going to talk about the music musical aspect in a moment because that's, that's very fascinating, but you mentioned Adam and also the Garden of Eden in your book. Just a quick parenthesis. We're told that Adam and Eve had three children, Cain, Abel, and Seth. If we come from Adam and Eve, and they had three sons, 
Folks, let that sink in for a moment. Your take on that. What, on the three sons? Yes. Well, I I don't have a take on it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, thinking they had three sons and we're supposed to come from them. Too. Huh? I, I only knew of Cain and Abel. I, I, did, I thought Seth was some, some other uh, biblical progeny, wasn't he? He came in a different book, correct. But if they had three sons and we come from them, where are the females? So that's, that's always bothered me. And that's why I was a troubled child in a Catholic school asking all those questions. But that's, like, that's beyond now. I like Cain and Abel. Pardon? I like the story Cain and Abel. I do too. I do too. Now, I've discussed musical tuning frequencies during a number of interviews, Richard. Tell us how the ancient world's interest in musical tuning have a, or has a connection with astronomy. How does musical tuning, right, connect with astronomy? Well, yes. the, um, when, um, first of all, the moon is, a, is a, a body that was created by an early event in the solar system uh, when a Mars-sized body collided with the Earth or a proto-Earth. And uh, the Mars body was largely vaporized apart from its metal content. Uh, and uh, it ended up reconfiguring itself with aggregation now as a planet around our planet. And so um, initially it had a, you know, it was a big geological e effect on the Earth with tides even of the surface of the Earth. And it was going around, you know, like every six hours or something like that. So it, it took all that tidal energy and it moved out slowly uh, to the, well, quite quickly at first, but then more slowly. Now, uh, when we mentioned the 70,000 years, or I think it is actually 200,000 years ago, uh, the outer planets started to come into harmony with the moon. But it's really the moon that came into harmony with them because the outer planets were already had a vague harmonic relationship between each other. But it turned out that was perfect, but only perfect for if the moon uh, came into harmony with them. So I, I believe that this something harmonious happened to the Earth. But the effects on, on our lives is we just take it for granted. We just don't realize that it is absolutely crucial uh, that our moon is there to provide that. We already know that it, for instance, stabilizes the Earth from um, changing its axis, and it protects the, it protected the Earth from a lot of meteorites, and so it has many. It has so many different. It's helped the life. Uh, on the Earth as well, with its tides and tidal regions and so forth. But the outer planets, they were already in a very particular orientation. There, those are the, the orbits of going around the sun. So the orbit of the moon going around the Earth came into a relationship with Jupiter of nine to eight, which is extraordinarily simple. And that's what we would call uh, a whole tone in music. So whenever you play a musical scale, it's made up of whole tones and semitones. And the relationship of the moon to 
to Saturn is the relationship of a semitone. Uh, and then the relationship of Uranus to the moon is a relation uh, in numbers of 25 over 24. Uh, and that's called the chromatic semitone. And the reason for that is that it arises when you're, when you, when you get 12 notes in, a, in an octave. So in the, in the 20th century, there was a revolution in music called chromatic writing. And that sat on the top of the creation of equal temperament, which is everybody's pianos have equal temperament. Uh, and it means that a piano in one place plays with a, any instrument anywhere else, roughly. Uh, so you can have orchestras. It's partly a creation of orchestras, partly a creation of, of freedom in the world of music. It allows you to play, you know, in all these different keys uh, and to modulate them and do variations in them. And uh, the whole world of modern music has been created by having 12 equally spaced semitones, and that's called chromatism. Uh, and two semitones make up a whole tone. So... Whereas in the ancient world, the, um, they would have seen that these were pure tones, every one of our tones is slightly compromised, just like modern life. You know, we're able to get our result because we've, we've discovered a simple way of encoding uh, musical tones. Whereas in the ancient world, it was much more difficult with instruments. You know, it was very hard to play them uh, and uh, tune them up and, you know, to... It was um, a much more challenging subject, music, uh, and but it's a very fascinating area. What, why, why I'm saying this is that is that we, because of equal temperament, we don't quite relate too well to these perfect pure tones, but these do exist between the uh, the three nearest outer planets. Now that's extraordinarily significant piece of information, and it's not the only one, of course. The, there, there are many other coincidences and strangenesses. The, the Fibonacci series, for instance, between the Earth and, and Venus, uh, which exists not only in its synodic period, which is how we see it from Earth. It comes up as a morning star and then an evening star. Well, a morning star, morning star, you know, that'll be a synodic period of Venus. And it's, it's eight over five of 365 days, which is our year. Um, which means that in, in eight of our years, there's five of those uh, synodic periods. But if you look at its uh, orbital period, then uh, it's another, uh, it's, not, it's not instead of eight to five, it's 13 to eight, which is the next Fibonacci pair. And that uh, that is its sidereal period. And so uh, some aspects were built into the solar system, but it appears that the moon has brought out this a tremendous uh, extra um, musicality. Now, it, with the numbers of Adam, um, if he goes to 1440, then the, the numbers underneath 1440 allow you to have all the, five of the modal scales uh, that you'll find in India or in the, the church music. And these are um these are our scales that we that we learn uh to play 
when we're playing a guitar, say, or, or a piano. So uh, although the outer planets are only expressing the prototypes of music, it seems unlikely that, that the human beings should have arisen um, just at that time when the moon came into harmony with those outer planets. So the suggestion is that there's some kind of... No, well, I mean, for instance, why do we criticise the uh, the modern world? Uh, why do we think that everything's due to human action? It may be, you know, we, we really don't know why the world is the way it is at the moment. And probably, you know, that's always been the case. But the thing is that you can home in on important archetypes which make the world. In the latter times, it's been the laws. You know, the laws have allowed us a great deal of freedom. You know, we know why heat goes out of houses. You know, we know why electricity goes down wires. We, you know, we know so many things about the world now. But on the other hand, uh, there was a form of understanding uh, that existed in the past that, that was different. So what I'm really, I suppose, suggesting is that, that we, we, uh, we need to contact our history in order to look back and then maybe look forward to a time when perhaps we can uh, be more holistic and see the, the solar system around us as, as a miracle and life as a miracle uh, and not think of it as being a mere function. Well, very important what you said, but you also mentioned like electricity going through wire, we're told, yeah. almost as if that's the only way, but electricity can also be transmitted without wires, and that's not the good way for many because you wouldn't be able to meter that. And I think of, you know, one of the biggest secrets is, as you mentioned, sound, frequency, vibration, and those were the words of Tesla as well, if you want to yeah. learn the secrets of the universe. Now, Richard, I've lately I've been looking into, let me just see if I can pronounce this correctly, anthroposophy. Have you heard the word anthroposophy? Yes. Which is defined as a formal educational, therapeutic, and creative system seeking to use mainly natural means to optimize physical and mental health and well-being, as well as cymatics, which is a modal vibrational phenomena. Do you think the ancient ones knew about these modalities and perhaps used sound vibration in order to build or assist in the building of these structures to find universal harmony? Well, some people have found Indian yantras, haven't they, in the uh, vibrations of semantics. Um, and uh, Rudolf Steiner, who uh, broke away from the Theosophical Society because he wanted a more human-centered uh, version of it. Therefore, had, anthroposophy, right? Yeah, anthroposophy, yeah. So he, uh, he also her inherited the ideas of Goethe, so... Goethe was uh, a phenomenologist, and he recommended people to watch the growth of flowers intensively and and uh, plants, uh, and to see natural forms, uh, and to then bring them into their imagination. So, um, I think this power of bringing things into the imagination is very important. Uh, be 
you know, because we tend to be, the functional world tends to rely on things being realized outside of ourselves. Um, and I think when people start to see things in their imagination, they, they get a form of concentration, which, uh, frees them to a certain degree from the, um, reliance entirely on the outside world. Uh, and yet it's not as if it's disconnected. It's, but it is, it's a bit like in yoga. They suggest that, um, uh, that you must develop some form of concentration in order to be able to then see yourself. So I think the, these, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, we, we have everything today. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have knowledge of all these things. So, you know, it's an extraordinary period that we're living in where we can taste all these different ideas and even practice them and make something. Uh, and, and, and yet <laughs> we tend to be complaining a lot. We about- tend to be complaining a lot because with the advent of technology, and again, I don't mean to continue criticizing technology. I think technology is a double-edged sword. It could help like a knife. You can cut an apple or you can kill. Well, technology, we have the advent of the internet. But at the same time, Richard, we have so much disinformation and misinformation. In the times when you and I were growing up, our source was the library. Right now, these children and these young adults have access to every single book ever written at their fingertips. Yet, sometimes they cannot even answer what 2 plus 2 is. Why is that? The library, of course, uh, was, um, I mean, we, we had to remember things. Uh, when you've got everything available, you don't have to remember anything. Rudolf Steiner suggested that that having a notebook, in fact, was a form of weakness. Yeah, and I think that technology, of course, is a substitute for our own internal capacity. Brains. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we used to remember a single TV program for the rest of our lives. But, um, uh, you know, and if you do really care about something, you do remember it. So uh, uh, memory, uh, obviously, I've started off on the idea of memory here, but it's um, weakening in terms of the present moment or the, uh, the attention span, as they call it these days, uh, of people. Uh, and there's no, there's no real desire to um, correct for that because we are just a commodity, really, um, in our own world. You know, we've made ourselves into commodities. Indeed, we are commodities, but we are coming to the end of the first segment. Richard, how can people buy the book, The Harmonic Origins of the World? And we'll continue another hour after we come back. How can people buy this book and all your other great material? Well, I mean, they can go to the publisher, Inner Traditions, or bookshops, of course. There are still, there are still a few bookshops available. And, uh, um, and then there's the usual way of getting books which you know is uh, through the internet. So I, 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 I mean, I, I think also that uh, it's, <laughs> it's. Uh, there's never been a better time to be able to get books. 
but on the other hand of course you know one needs to focus so I hope people will have a look at least at one of my books uh, because it's it's got uh, what I've tried to do is um, well I've tried to create a quality story so that if it's possible for them to understand uh, it, 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 you know it, it, I, think, I think it will reward them and do you have a website? I have a website, uh, but it's very broad at the moment. It's numbersciences.org, and it has some information about the music. I'll be doing more on that in the coming six months. Uh, but at, at the moment, I have a lot of analyses, interpretation of megalithic sites, and the studies of people's understanding uh, how they probably thought in the megalithic period enabling them to be able to build these monuments great well folks don't go anywhere i'm here with richard heath directly from wales and we have one more hour of great information when we come back this is mel fabregas and you are listening to veritas don't go anywhere thank you for listening to the first part of this very important veritas interview to listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you. Thank you.